Good morning. We are continuing our series titled The Jesus Idol. Essentially, this series is about uh, learning how to represent Jesus faithfully in the world. As I was reflecting this past week on a number of things, a number of issues came to mind, and I was bombarded with the same thing over and again. Over and over again. Do you guys ever experience that? You feel like God is trying to pound this thing into your head a little bit? And that thing is which I'm going to address this morning. The theme of this bombardment in my head <clears throat> was that in our Northeast post-Christian culture, the gospel tends to fall on one of two extremes. We have the one extreme of legalism, which is essentially to say that we can save ourselves through our good works. We can experience God's saving love through our good works. And the other extreme is relativism. The idea that it doesn't really matter how I live my life. I can live my life however I want to, and God's saving love will still embrace me. But the thing is, neither of these are the gospel. Neither of these extremes are the gospel. The gospel is a declaration that God saves sinners. At the very base core of the gospel, it's a declaration that God saves sinners. And that his love has been poured out through his son, Jesus Christ, to do so. It's when we place our trust and our faith in what God has done for us, and we embrace that love, it necessarily changes us. There's this change that takes place from the inside out. We engage in this lifelong process of transformation. And so to address this issue, I want to turn to the book of Revelation. How often do we preach through Revelation? Well, at Restoration Church, we'll preach through Revelation. I think it's a very important book that oftentimes only gets cast in these superstitious, uh, crazy kind of ways. And I think it has a lot to teach us. And so at some point, we will do a series on the book of Revelation. If you need a Bible, uh, please raise your hand. We can have someone get you a Bible. But if you have your Bibles with, uh, with you today, turn them to the book of Revelation. It's the last book in the Bible, so it's easy to find. <clears throat> Chapter 2 is where we will begin today. It says this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now all that really is to say is that Jesus is the authority of the church and that he is among the church. He is present within the church. He continues, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and you have found them false. You have persevered, and you have endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate." Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give you the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Father, give us insight into your word this morning. And Father, as we gain insight, Father, I pray that you would open our ears and open our eyes to Father, that we might become more like you through this process. Amen. All right, so Revelation was written in a time in history when the Christian world was fully embedded within the Roman world at the time. And it was embedded in a world where the fastest growing religion was the worship of the Caesar. 
Now, many people were financing huge temples to show how committed they were to the worship of the Caesar. At the same time, the Caesar is attempting to stamp out through persecution all people who do not bow down to his name. And so in light of this context where persecution is so thick and persecution is so heavy, how are you as a Christian supposed to live? Man, are we just wasting our time following Christ among this, this fastest growing religion of our day? Are we just wasting our time? Are we literally putting our head on the chopping block for nothing? That in part is what Revelation is hoping to answer with a very resounding no. No, you're not wasting your time. God is faithful. God will prevail. Hang in there. And so this prophetic letter begins with warnings and encouragement to seven Christian communities. The first of which is addressed to the Christian community living in Ephesus, which we just read. Now, Ephesus was the greatest city in the province of Asia. It wasn't the capital city, but it was the largest of all the cities. It was a port city, and it also became a melting pot of culture. And so in this port city, it had every culture from all over the world coming in, and it was influencing Ephesus with its practices and with its thought life. It was kind of like New York City in that regard. It's a huge, huge port city that's influenced by all of the regions of the world. Not only was it the largest city, it also had the greatest cultural centers. And it was also the location of the worship of Artemis. Now, her temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was this huge, massive structure that had 160 columns. It was 400 by 420 feet by 360 feet wide. It was huge in, the, in considering the ancient world. And it housed her little idol, a small black figure that had multiple breasts. She was a fertility goddess. And the way that you worshipped Artemis was by engaging her prostitutes in all sorts of sexual deeds. And around this temple of Artemis, there surrounded cultural centers for witchcraft and magic and superstition and crime, in part because the temple of Artemis functioned as an asylum. You could do whatever you wanted in the city of Ephesus. You could kill anybody. You could rape anyone. You could do whatever you wanted in the city of Ephesus. And as long as you got within the temple of Artemis, you were safe. And so imagine Ephesus, this hotbed of witchcraft and pagan idolatry, and living your life any way you want to because there's no penalty for anything. It's lewd and it's crude and the morality is loose. Heraclides once said that when he looked at Ephesus, it made him weep. Just thinking of Ephesus made him weep because of how horrible of a city Ephesus was. But Ephesus was also the up-and-coming city. It was where all the intellects fled. This is where the worship was progressive and the understanding of the deities flourished and it pushed limits. This is therefore where the Caesar constructed massive temples for himself. And this is also where Paul encouraged the elders of the Ephesian church to keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood. Because I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Be on your guard. Ephesus is a horrible place to live. Be on your guard. Paul knew of the difficulty the elders were going to have promoting faithfulness to Christ in Ephesus. Paul spent more time in Ephesus than he did in any other city. He knew the challenges. He knew the culture. He knew the people. And he knew that some would rise up to distort the truth. Of Christ, and he would lead many, and they would lead many astray. 
And so be on your guard. Be on your guard. And so it is encouraging that roughly 30 years after Paul left Ephesus, that Jesus could state to his revelation to John that I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and you have endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. Man, you guys are doing great, Jesus is saying. Man, thumbs up to you guys. You're doing great. The wickedness that thrives all around you, you don't tolerate it. You don't bow down. You don't bend to the cultural influences that are surrounding you. You guys are doing great. Keep it up. Stand firm. Persevere. Keep it up. Stand strong. But as is the case with all seven letters that Jesus provides to John to send to the churches, except for the letters of Smyrna and Philadelphia, not our Philadelphia, by the way, the praise ends with a strict warning. He says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You see, Ephesus was a hotbed of pagan culture. There were so many worldly influences coming in, and the, the thought life and the practice life of all of the pagan people of all of the world were coming in to Ephesus. And so there was this great intellectualism that was striving, that was thriving in Ephesus, and it threatened the Christianity there. And so the Christians of Ephesus naturally came around. They said, man, we've got to defend our faith. We've got we to learn the, the deep components of our faith. We need to become intellectuals ourselves so that we can fight against all the heresies that are on the rise here. And so the Christians there became so concerned with right doctrine and defending the most detailed components of the faith that they completely forgot what the faith was supposed to be about in the meantime. They became so concerned with parsing out the gospel of Jesus Christ and picking it apart and analyzing it and defending it that they began to forget that the heart of the gospel is love. They began to puff themselves up with so much knowledge. They were so concerned with living rightly in amidst the culture that they found themselves that they abandoned their call to love God, their neighbor, and certainly their enemy. They had fallen to the extreme and they had become legalists. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. What good is it to have all of the information in your head to defend the Christian faith if you don't love? What good is it to live rightly, to obey all of the laws, but you don't do it out of the motivation of love? You are nothing. Knowledge without love is worthless. And so I served as a pastor at a Christian university for six years before I came here to Restoration Church in Levittown. And what I noticed there was that there were a lot of Christians who would rather defend some small, minute, little detail of some doctrinal issue than they would embrace a brother or a sister of theirs in love. I witnessed firsthand some incredibly nasty, horrible things said, condemnation, gossip, slander, literally pushing each other cursing out, swearing at, horrible things said from one Christian to another. 
I noticed that there would be a Calvinist and an Arminian sitting at the same table, and it became an ugly thing. If you have no idea what I mean by that, then you can ask me later, but you probably are better off for not knowing what I mean by that. Man, we got so concerned with puffing our heads up with so much knowledge about the doctrinal issues that we forgot what it means to love our neighbor. And so this whole series, right, the Jesus Idol, it's all about how do we as a church learn to represent Jesus faithfully to the world? So it's interesting that if you were to go out and ask the world what they thought about Christianity, which many people have done, by the way, the statistics are rather jarring. The statistics indicate that we, as Christians, are known for our internal schisms, There are roughly 35,000 versions of the Christian faith, by the way, in the world that exists today. We are known for our internal schisms. We are known for having priests who abuse children, antagonism to evolution. We are known for being Republicans. I guess that's a bad thing to the world. Our judgments, we are known for our judgment, our judgmentalism on the world. We are known for our condemnation of of homosexuals and those who have abortions. And we are known for having a legalistic, holier-than-thou mentality. That is how the world looks at the Christian church, according to statistics. And so how did we get this way? How did we get to this this point as, as as a Christian church that is all about legalism? That is more known for our judgmentalism and what we're against than we are for our love. At what point in our history did we abandon our duty to love? And so I'm going to give you a very, very brief walkthrough of the history of the church. This is a multiple-year class that you should be taking, probably, but I'm going to try to do it in the next 10 minutes or so. (laughs) So for roughly 1,900 years that have passed since this revelation, they haven't been pretty for the most part. The first 300 years of the Christian church, Christians endured intense persecution. I mean intense persecution from both Jews and the Romans. To the early Christian leaders, including Christ, they only saw this as natural, by the way. They they anticipated it. They expected it. They understood that the nature of Christianity was in such contrast to the ways of the world that they only expected to be persecuted and to face such opposition Retaliation and persecution were always going to be the result. Because when the world is bent in on itself, when the self-reigning heart and the self-promoting heart is the way that the world lives, then love is all of a sudden now a countercultural force. That which defines us as Christians is a countercultural force. And if love is the defining characteristic of a Christ follower, we are now enemies of the state. You get that? We are now enemies to the culture of the world around us. And so the persecutions were intense for them. Christians were burned alive. They were tossed in boiling vats of oil. They were dragged behind chariots until they died. They were dressed in blood-soaked fur and had dogs unleashed on them. They were crucified, of course. They had their heads chopped off. And from time to time, they were also thrown into the games at the Colosseum, where hundreds of thousands of spectators looked on in amazement as Christians were killed. 
And so for nearly 300 years, Christians who would not bow down to the worship of the Caesar were persecuted intensely. It was until 313 A.D. when when, uh, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire that the persecution stopped with the Edict of Milan. Christianity is now the world's official religion. And so what's going to happen? Of course, persecution is going to cease. Now, this is both a blessing and a curse. Persecution stopped, but those who were persecuted understood that persecution provided a certain authenticity to the Christian faith. Man, persecution weeded out all the people who didn't want to truly follow Christ. All the people who were willing to bow down to the Caesar, they just proved that they weren't willing to follow Christ. Those who were ardent in pursuing Christ, they endured intense persecution. And so when that stopped, all of a sudden, everything became nominal. Everyone became Christian in name. And so when the official state policy of a pagan nation becomes Christianity, what you end up with is not a faith that demands total obedience and literal surrender of your whole life to following Jesus, but you end up with a half-hearted, somewhat devoted person who gives lip service to a supreme being. Because the previous tests of true conversion to Christianity through adherence to discipline and instruction which led to baptism, they were replaced by simply being a citizen of the empire. Everybody was a Christian. You're a Roman citizen, you are a Christian. That's just how it worked. And so everyone was a Christian. And at the top of the Christian hierarchy sat Constantine, the emperor, and the pope that he had appointed. And so many used the church for political agenda and great financial gain. Privilege and position, not only in religion, but also in the state, used the church as a means to an end. The church became a means of manipulating citizens into civil obedience rather than surrender to Christ. Those who were good and standing with the emperor, the wealthier class, and all the emperor's friends, basically, those who rose to power and sacred positions, they also received the priestly positions. And so the reaction of those who desired to understand Christ, his ways to to have his spirit indwelling them, to live faithfully for God, their reaction was to flee all this, to flee the corruption, get out of here. And so what did they do? They moved to the mountains, they moved to the deserts, they started monasteries. And so as the Christian world of Constantine twisted and was contorted, all of those who really understood the Christian faith sat in isolation from the rest of the world, up in the hills, up in the deserts, up in the mountains. And so for the next 1,200 years, the church turned with whatever tide the current emperor desired for it. There were a few bright spots along the way. Don't get me wrong, not all of church history is horrible, but there were a few bright spots along the way. But generically and generally, for 1,200 years, the church was wrapped in scandal and schism and division, manipulation and crusade. And the distinction between the priesthood and the laity grew with tremendous force as the official language of the church and the Roman Empire became Latin. It was a language that nobody knew how to speak or read. No peasant spoke Latin. No peasant spoke Latin or read Latin. When I say most or all peasants, I don't actually mean that. I'm sure there were a few. But the priestly class were now literally the ones with the access to the word of God. They were the only access to the ones with the word of God. And therefore, they could hold this word of God over everybody's head. They could say, this is what the word of God says. You can't read it. Only I can. Only I can interpret it. So you will do what I say. The power and the force of the authority and judgment of God were solely in the hands of the priests who were in cahoots with the state. 
Do you see the problem? The church is run by the state. The state is run by the church. They're in cahoots with one another. The church becomes a means for civil obedience. And so if you are a peasant living in the Roman Empire, what choice do you have? You can't leave the state. You can't leave the church, and so you are under the authority of the church. And even if you could, what you're doing all is you're risking burning in hell for all of eternity, because that is what they held over you. You don't want to run away from that risk, so you stay. The fear of burning in hell was the carrot that the church dangled over the peasants. And so this fear of of eternal hell was a great motivator for men to sell their properties and their possessions and give all that money to the church because the church said, you need to pay your indulgences. You're a sinner. You need to pay us. You need to give charitably to us so that you can be forgiven. Give of what you have and we will forgive you. That is the tax that the forgiveness of Jesus Christ demands. And so the church, with all of its wealth, and with all of its splendor, and with all of its majesty, as it impoverished all the peasants in the, in the world around it, the dinner table of the priestly class became more elaborate and appetizing. The robes became more elaborate and ordained. The throne became bigger and stronger. And the church buildings got bigger and bigger. The church built itself by impoverishing the world. Now understand that up until this point, all the Catholic Church had done was taken that legalistic gospel and said that this is it. Do these things. Do X, Y, and Z. Check off your boxes, and then you can enter into our community. Become a legalist, right? Give your indulgences, then you can extend grace. Come and and take part in the sacraments, then you can have grace. Come and be part of this. Do this. Give your indulgence. Check A, B, and C. Then you can be accepted. Then God's love will be extended. And it wasn't until 1517 that the foundation began to crack, when Martin Luther, who was a monk who had lived up in the mountains, came down, and he saw the corruption, he saw the tyranny, he saw the chaos, and he said no. He looked at the legalism and the idea that salvation could be earned, that salvation could be bought, and he said no. Luther claimed that faith alone justifies man, for salvation is a free gift from God. Grace alone forgives man, and it cannot be purchased. And so in 1521, obviously the Catholic Church didn't like this very much, and so what did they do? They excommunicated Martin Luther from the church. But all this did was allow him to now develop Protestantism. He started his own sect, essentially. He developed a new model and theology for church policy and practice, Protestantism. We, Restoration Church, are a byproduct of that choice that Martin Luther made to nail those 95 theses on that Wittenberg church door. And so by this time, the Catholic Church had other controversies to settle, so they couldn't spend a whole lot of time dealing with Luther. They had the scientific revolution to handle. The Catholic Church had already determined that the earth was the center of the universe, and remember that the state and the church are in cahoots, so what the church says is the authority. It's the word of God. The earth is the center of the universe. Look at what God's word says. The earth is firmly established. It cannot be moved, right? The earth is the center of the universe, The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. The sun rises and sets in its place. The sun rises and the sun sets. The earth doesn't move. The earth is the center of the universe. And so Galileo, an astronomer and a Christian, by the way, understood that these are all poetry. These aren't literal. And so he challenged the church. And what did the church do? They placed him in house arrest. They tried to shut him up from the rest of the world. They attempt to lock up his claims and divorce him from the public eye. 
But it didn't work, nor did it really matter, because the schism between the Catholic Church and Galileo allowed for the scientific revolution to take wings and fly away. The foundation of the Catholic authority had begun to crack with the Protestant Reformation. As a stronghold of the Catholicism loosened, it gave way for the examination of new ideologies, the exploration for new discoveries, and the freedom to dream. And so as the scientific discoveries were made, people began to apply them to culture. And so all of a sudden, you have the Industrial Revolution. All these scientific discoveries now, we can apply these to the way we live our life. The Industrial Revolution was the byproduct of new developments in agriculture and machinery and manufacturing, mining and transportation, but also philosophy, ethics, worldview, and in some, one's entire way of life. And so with this new mode of industrial life came new trends in intellectual, scientific, and cultural life. Reason, therefore, became the primary source of legitimizing authority. And so what do you get? You have this, you have the uh, scientific revolution, which runs into the industrial revolution, which, which runs into the enlightenment of the 18th century. But when the world is beginning to change its view on how it functions, the church is going to have to react. If the church remains unconvinced about how the world is working, what is going to happen to the church? It's going to become the naive worldview. It's going to become an insignificant thing that gets tossed to the, the, the backdrop of society. And so when the Enlightenment, with all of its incessant search for, for science and quantitative reasoning, challenges the foundation of the Christian faith, the Christian faith is going to have to react. And so what do we get? Fundamentalism. Fundamentalism is born from all of these reactions, the scientific and the industrial and the, and the uh, Enlightenment of the 18th century. And the church reacts to this changing social, cultural, and intellectual mentality by holding more rigorous, rigorously to its core principles. And the belief that the Bible is the authoritative word of God, they presumed, means that it should be taken literally, that everything in the Bible should be read literally. And so if the scientific world around me is telling me that, you know what, the world wasn't created in seven days, well, the fundamentalists are going to say, wait a minute, the, the authoritative word of God says that it was. And so what happens? The world was created in seven days. All you scientists, you guys are the ignorant ones. We hold firmly to the truth that we know to be true. And so fundamentalist Christianity, as a reaction to the enlightenment of its time, necessarily had to establish principles and foundations for how the Christian life was to be lived. And so met with the challenge, the response was to buckle down and hold unswervingly to the truths that they knew. And what this created now was Christian modernism. See how the steps progress? Christian fundamentalism birthed Christian modern, modernism. And the Christian modernist was the reaction to everything that had become before it. Wait a minute. If this is true and the world is evil and the world is corrupt and we are the right ones, then we don't associate with the world. We don't buy into their lies. We don't associate with them. Good Christians don't interact with the world. Good Christians don't smoke. Good Christians don't drink. Good Christians don't have sex, they don't dance, they don't swear, they don't lie, and they certainly don't associate with all those pagan worldly people who do. Christianity became a system of laws and rules based on a legal system that was contrary and opposed to the philosophy of the changing world. If you guys have ever seen the movie Footloose, anybody seen the movie Footloose? You understand how Christian modernism was very prominent in the middle of the 20th century. And so the modernism within the Protestant side of Christianity that has dominated the last 100 years of the church is basically a legalistic gospel. You see how we haven't really moved all that far away from the legalism that the Ephesians were dealing with? 
But something happened towards the end of the 20th century. There was a pendulum swing away from legalism all the way towards relativism. We now live not in a modern world, but in a postmodern world. We have reacted to what has come before us, and we have established a new worldview regarding how the church is to be present in the ever-changing world. We now experience, we now desire experience to govern us over reason. We now need relationships to guide us rather than authority figures. We now don't believe that there is any foundational truth governing all things, but that each and every person can appropriately determine what worldview is right for them, and for them, it is. And if it feels right, then it must be right, so you might as well just do it. These are all the mentalities of the postmodern world. We have reacted to the modern scientific objectivism, right, the legalism, and we have taken that legalistic mentality and we have swung it all the way towards the other end as a reaction. But what it has created is flippant relationships, shallow intimacy, and a very loose morality. And a church that adheres to this trend is one that becomes like the world so that it will be appealing to the world. If we adhere to the trend of postmodernity, then we become like the world so that we are appealing to the world. The postmodern relativistic church is one that strips itself of all of the absolute God in order to make all people feel welcome, because we don't want to offend anybody. The postmodern relativistic church abandons holiness in its pursuit of grace. The postmodern relativistic church is more concerned with me, the individual, than we, the corporate body. The postmodern relativistic church says, come and experience what we have to offer, but don't feel like you have to make a commitment because commitments are of the devil. Don't commit to anything. Don't feel like you have to commit to anything, and if you do, then it's wrong. The postmodern relativistic church has bought into the consumerism and the materialism and the individualism that dominates the culture that it finds itself in. And the postmodern relativistic church proposes tolerance of all things over love. Tolerance is the champion of the postmodern era, not love. And so we, like the Ephesian church in Revelations, we have abandoned the love we had at first. We have taken the legalism, we have swung it all the way to the relativism when we forgot the gospel in the middle. We have looked to culture to define what the church should be about and what it should look like, and too many have determined that the church should be known for being hip and trendy and amusing. That if we can somehow make this Sunday morning show as show-like as possible, then maybe we'll win over the world. That if we have the coolest and hippest and trendiest church in the neighborhood, then we're going to win everybody. That's how we're going to win the world. That's the postmodern mentality. Don't don't get me wrong. There there are plenty of hip and trendy churches that have seen thousands of changed lives. That in itself isn't an evil thing. But if you abandon your first love in order to be hip and trendy, if that is your motivation, then you find yourself in a horrible position. Because as this mentality has seeped into the church, it has loosened the standards to great extremes for what it means to be a Christian. Everyone's a Christian. In Minnesota, where I'm from, everyone's a Christian. We say that all the time. Nobody goes to church, but everyone's a Christian. Nobody follows Jesus, but everyone's a Christian. Christian. 
Live whatever kind of life you want. The postmodern relativistic church tells us God still loves you. And if we discover that we too have abandoned the love we had at first, then Jesus' words of warning to the Ephesians are the same words of warning to us. And we need to listen. He continues in Revelation by saying, Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Turn from your pride and learn again the simplicity and challenge of love. This is my desire for you. Put love at the center of all you do. Come back to me. Learn to love with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Take that seriously. And if you take nothing else seriously, take that seriously. Because if you do not repent, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor, Jesus says. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, the challenge we run up against in our postmodern relativistic culture is that we don't hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. We have become like the practices of the Nicolaitans. We embrace the practices of the Nicolaitans. Because when the church embraces a culture that says, sure, live whatever lifestyle you want, we'll accept you. And sure, we'll tolerate everything. After all, that's what grace is for. And sure, believe whatever truth you want. All religions take you to the same place in the end anyway. And sure, live an apathetic life and call it Christianity. And sure, live your life however you want. God still loves you. And sure, live like the world. And if you feel bad, just go to confession. If you feel bad, just say a few Hail Marys. When the church abandons an absolute foundation in order to open the doors to the postmodern relativistic thought, you have become a Nicolaitan. In Nicolaitan, there were Christians who rose up within the church But they looked at the grace of God that had been given in Jesus Christ. They looked at the cross and they said, that is incredible. Isn't the cross incredible? Isn't God's grace incredible? You can say amen to that, by the way. That's a truth. God's grace is incredible. But man, his grace is so incredible. The penalty for my sin has already been paid. I can live whatever life I want. Why don't I just go live a riotous, loose life? I can live whatever I want. The penalty has already been paid. I can do whatever I want. God's grace is incredible. Grace all of a sudden becomes a license for sin. That was the Nicolaitan mentality. And they became intensely promiscuous. They became intensely promiscuous, living their life like all the rest of the Ephesians they found themselves in. Intensely promiscuous, living their life to satisfy whatever pleasure their eyes and their heart and their mind and their body wanted. It doesn't matter what I do. Grace covers everything. It doesn't matter what I do. The penalty for my actions has already been paid. It doesn't matter what I do. God still loves me. You think that's a mentality that we need to work on in our culture today? That is the postmodern relativistic mentality. It doesn't matter what you do because everything is to be tolerated. There is no longer any offense. There is no longer any shame because everything is to be tolerated. Live whatever kind of life you want because everything is to be tolerated. But that is not the gospel, my friends. That relativism is not the gospel. The legalism that says you can, if you're good enough, earn your way to God, that is not the gospel. Neither of these are the gospel, and yet they flourish all around us. The relativism might seem appealing, right? 
might seem like an appealing option, but there's nothing about it that brings actual life. There's nothing about it that brings joy. There's nothing about it that addresses the deepest longings of the human soul. There's nothing about this that reconciles us to God. And this type of gospel does not save anybody. And so in the end, both the legalist gospel and the relativist gospel and all who embrace them will be judged because they're not gospels at all. We, by and large, like the Ephesians, have forsaken the gospel of love. The gospel that says God saves sinners. At the end of the day, God saves sinners. Amen? Amen. That God's love was so poured out upon humanity that he saves sinners. And it's a declaration. It's good news. It's not good advice. It's not good advice on how to be more moral like the legalists. It's not just a declaration that God loves everybody, so who cares how you live your life? That's not a declaration that changes anybody. That's not a declaration that satisfies the deepest longings of the human soul. God saves sinners. And when this truth, when this declaration is embraced, the result is a changed life. The result is not better people. The result is a changed life, learning to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and increasingly loving our neighbor as ourself. And so Jesus concludes, he says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The book of Revelation describes that in the paradise of God, there are thousands of trees of life. They, they line the, the river that is born from God's throne, the river of life. And we'll constantly be eating from the tree of life, life eternal. Jesus will give eternal life to those who are victorious. And so when you choose to embrace love, the love of God in you and through you as your absolute way of life, if that is what you embrace, that the love of God poured out upon humanity, right, if you embrace the gospel and you allow that love to be born in you and you allow that love to be born through you, then what you are doing is you're pushing up a cultural wall. You're pushing up against a cultural wall. And there may come a time as it was constantly experienced in the first century when that wall collapses on top of you. Because you are fighting a countercultural war. You are becoming a countercultural force. And so it's foolish of us to think that we won't be hated by the world if we choose to embrace the gospel of love. It's foolish of us to think that we won't experience slander or gossip when we embrace the gospel of love. We're a countercultural force. We're pushing up against a wall that will fall upon us. But to the one who is victorious, Jesus concludes, he says that you will inherit eternal life. And he says that you need to repent of your legalism, you need to repent of your relativism in order to do so, and you need to learn to do. Do the things you did at first, he says. Do the things, embrace the gospel that you inherited in the beginning, the gospel of love. Begin to do. And so early in the second century in Rome, amidst intense persecution, there was a plague that broke out. Thousands upon thousands of Roman citizens died. They were dying so fast, actually, that 
they could not dig the graves fast enough in order to bury these people. And so what happened was that there were just a lot of corpses lying in the streets. A lot of corpses were, were bumping up against the side of the street, and as people were walking by, they'd just shove a corpse to the side. And what would happen is wild animals and dogs would come and begin to tear these corpses apart. And so many people, in an attempt to find help, found themselves abandoned in the streets among all the corpses and wild animals. Because most of the Romans who remained healthy, they either stayed within their houses because they didn't want to go outside and experience the, the uh, effects of the plague, and they, or they fled to the mountains. They fled away. They fled away from Rome to get away from the illness. It was the Christians. It was those who embraced the gospel of love. The ones who were being intensely persecuted, who went out into the streets and cared for their enemies and cared for their neighbors. They went among the herding and the scared people who were either dying among the corpses and the wild animals or they went into the houses where all the shut-ins were. They went into the chaos and in love, they brought health and restoration to Rome. Historians say that if the Christians weren't there to do what they did, Rome may have perished off the face of the earth. That plague may have killed all the Romans. It was the Christians who stepped out and cared for the hurting and the diseased. They were, of course, motivated not by their own ambition, but by the love of God, right? They had experienced the gospel of love. And they were motivated to go into the streets. They were motivated to go and to push against culture. When all of the world around them ran scared to the mountains, they pushed against culture. And they saw the love of God working in them to restore Rome to health. And Jesus is saying that when you embrace God's love, it's going to change you. It's going to change you from the inside out. And he says, I beg of you to embrace this gospel. The gospel that says God loves sinners. And God died for sinners, not so that you could remain in your sin, so that you could grow and learn to be like him in this world. And he says, when you do that, I beg of you, when you do that, to see what will happen. Step out in faith and see what will happen to the world around you. And that's my plea, Restoration Church, that we would be a people who step out in faith. Not bound to the legalist gospel, not bound to the relative gospel. Be a true church that is learning to love God with all of our heart because we've embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ and the gospel of love. Can we see what will happen to the world around us when we step out in faith? Are you willing to do that with me, to embrace your neighbor in love? Not to say, hey, neighbor, why don't you come and be a really good person? Maybe someday you could earn your way to heaven. Or not to say, hey, neighbor, it doesn't matter how you live your life. God still loves you. That's not true. Those are not truth that will, that will change you from the inside out. But can we declare to our neighbors, God loves sinners, and God wants the very best life for you. So come along with me, and let me show you what this gospel thing is all about. Let's learn to do that together, Restoration Church. If you please stand for the benediction. Oh, Father in heaven, we do thank you. We do thank you that you save sinners, Father. And that the truth is, God, you do love sinners. But Father, we don't embrace that truth when we choose to live in the life ridden with sin. God, because your gospel necessarily changes us, Father. 
When we embrace that truth that you save sinners, God, it changes us from the inside out. It begins this process of transformation. We want nothing to do with the death, God, of the self-reigning heart, God. We want the life and the joy that is found in you. So, God, I pray that you would give us a boldness to take this gospel of love into the world, Father. I pray that we would be able to change the trajectory, Father, of the, of the, the, the Christian world we find ourselves in. Legalism and relativism, man, they're all around us, God. May we be different. And may we see, God, what you will do through us as we learn to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. Amen? Amen.